Welcome to Good Employment Chatter, the podcast of the Greater Manchester Good Employment Charter. In this season, each and every week, we'll be speaking about equality, diversity and inclusion. We'll be providing key legal updates, getting practical advice from industry experts and spreading more awareness on the good employment practices that are going to make Greater Manchester fairer, more inclusive and with equal opportunity for all. I'm your host, Ian MacArthur, so let's get on and into the episode. Today we'll be speaking on the important topic of faith and culture. Accommodating employees of different faiths and cultural backgrounds is key to ensuring diversity in the workplace and ensuring that employees are working in a way which suits them and their lifestyle. There are a huge number of different faiths, beliefs and religions out there and whilst we won't be able to cover the specifics for each one today, we're going to speak in the main discussion about how employers can be more supportive to those of faith more generally and the benefits of doing so. We'll then close the episode by doing an opinion piece on cultural difference in the workplace and how managers can accommodate this. Communication between managers and their employees regarding things like working styles and preferred communication techniques is essential to understanding how cultural difference can play a part in how we work. To start, as always, I'll pass the torch to our employment lawyer, Adam Haynes, partner at Aaron and Partners. He will start the show by giving this week's legal updates, providing the employment law perspective that will set the basis for our discussion. Thank you, Ian. This is our penultimate episode of the series. Today, I'm going to touch upon just a few points briefly, that being the case of Burke and Turning Point Scotland, which relates to issues around long COVID. The DWP sick note guidance, which has recently been published, and briefly discuss immigration rights for employees visiting from overseas companies. In the meantime, as I know today's topic is on faith and culture, I wanted to pick up on that point. In simple terms, faith in the most situations should be covered by the Equality Act. But what about class? I sort of wanted to pose that question. The definition of race in the Equality Act is non-exhaustive. Race includes colour, nationality and ethnic or national origin. There is therefore scope to argue the fact that other factors other than colour, nationality, etc. are covered because it says it includes but doesn't say it's exclusive to. One such factor to look at is obviously caste as well, which there's quite a lot of case law and commentary around this topic. So there is actually a case that deals with this point, which is Turkey v. Chandog. An employment tribunal held that caste discrimination was a ground of dissent, which was a direct race discrimination, as it was bound with their ethnic origin. However, there is conflicting case in this area. And it was clearly covered off by the government that there is no plans for the government to legislate in this area. So there is an element of uncertainty still around it. So posing the question of could class or even maybe even a Manchester accent or Liverpool accent, etc. fall within the same definition was something I wanted to cover off. The answer to that is probably not. Although there is scope to widen the definition of race as explained above, Issues around class, accents, etc. are not related to national origin or nationality and therefore it's unlikely to fall within the Equality Act. So take for example a Manchester accent. 
it is an English accent, irrespective of which area of the country it comes from. So provided that an employer doesn't discriminate against all English accents, then it's unlikely that it would amount to discrimination. I just wanted to cover that off as it sometimes comes up actually and is covered off in the media or in discussion points just to explain why the law currently covers what it covers. Moving on, I wanted to talk about the case of Burke and Turning Point Scotland. So this has been actually brought to my attention by a disability charity. They do a huge amount of work for people recovering from long COVID. This case deals with the points around long COVID and is seen by some as sort of a bit of light at the end of the tunnel in relation to whether long COVID comes within the definition of a disability. From a legal perspective, I don't think this really changes anything. The case doesn't really surprise me because it's a fact-sensitive case. But hopefully it will help from the purposes of educating employers as to what they need to be aware of and giving great assistance to people returning with long COVID. So to jump into the actual facts around the case, in this case, the Employment Tribunal determined that an employee with long COVID symptoms was disabled in accordance with the Equality Act. Mr. Burke was employed by Turning Point, was employed as a caretaker from April 2001. In November 2020, he tested positive for COVID and his symptoms were initially mild. However, he developed severe symptoms he was unable to stand for long periods without struggling. He had joint pain. He struggled to wash and shower himself, a loss of appetite, difficulty sleeping, reduced ability to concentrate. The symptoms were unpredictable. He would improve one day and then suffer from fatigue and exhaustion. As a consequence, Mr. Burt remained off sick. He provided fit notes stating he had long COVID and post-viral fatigue syndrome. However, interestingly, the occupational health reports that he received stated that he was fit to return to work and the disability provisions were unlikely to apply, which is somewhat surprising. As a consequence, he was dismissed in August 2021 for ill health. He brought a claim for discrimination on the grounds of disability and the tribunal concluded that Mr. Burke was disabled. He had not exaggerated his symptoms and had a physical impairment, which was post-viral fatigue caused by COVID. They concluded that the physical impairment had an adverse effect on his ability to carry out normal day-to-day activities. These are obviously the strands of the test. The effect was not minor or trivial and was long-term because it could well be that it could last for more than 12 months and as such, his claim was successful. As I previously said, this is seen as a positive step for ensuring that there's an education for employees to understand that long COVID in severe circumstances will fall within the definition of disability in accordance with the Act. The hope from the charity that I'm gaining this perspective is that this would enable employees who are struggling to deal with this issue with their employers some support by being able to pinpoint this case and explain the obligations must be considered. Further to an episode as well, a few weeks ago, we spoke about the changes to FitNotes. On the 1st of July, the DWP published FitNote guidance for health professionals which I just wanted to summarise because it shows a development of where this area is going and it's highly relevant for employers. So in summary, the guidance expands the categories of people who signed fit notes as previously discussed. So they would be sort of physios and pharmacists, etc. It removes the requirement for the fit notes to be signed in ink. There will be a transitional period 
during which 2017 and 2022 versions of the fit notes will be valid, which makes sense. It confirms that the assessment is about whether the individual is fit to work in general and not job specific. Any job specific element is normally down to occupational health, which is why when you're dealing with people with ill health, tends to require more information than merely that detail within the fit note. Is it just purely pinpoints for that period or the reason for the non-attendance is? The focus on the fit note should be on giving practical advice for employers, which is a positive step. However, it does highlight that a medical practitioner's advice is not binding on the employers, and it is for an employer to determine whether to accept the advice. There are circumstances where employers may decide to expand upon medical practitioner's fit note or get additional information from a specialist. And there is obviously case law where people have decided to disregard GP fit notes. However, you need to be very careful when doing so, as there are a few cases in particular that we've just referred to that deals with the consequences of people getting that wrong. Finally, we wanted to briefly deal with immigration status issues. We've received numerous inquiries around people's rights to work in the UK following Brexit and when they're part of a wider group of companies that are international. And I think there is currently quite a lot of uncertainty or, again, lack of education around this issue. So I just briefly wanted to cover it off. In essence, I'm not going to deal with the visa status issues or sponsor license issues. But what I wanted to say is if an individual is in the UK as a visitor, so not a British national or don't have leave to remain or don't have a valid visa, etc., then a visitor must not intend to work in the UK which includes taking employment in the UK, doing work for an organisation or business in the UK, establish or run a business as a self-employed person, doing a work placement or internship, directly selling to the public or providing goods or services. A visitor may only, when they're over, attend meetings, conferences, seminars and interviews, give a one-off or short series of talks and speeches provided they are not organised as commercial events and will not make a profit for the organiser, sign deals and contracts, attend trade fairs or promotional work only provided the visitor is not direct selling, carry out site visits and inspections, gather information for employment overseas, and finally be briefed on the requirements of a UK-based customer provided any work for customers done outside of the UK. So those are what visitors can do, but it's very limited. So they may fly in to attend a meeting, but if they fly in to work on a machine or a system with building a bridge, then that's going to fall outside the category of the visitor visa. They will need to obtain an appropriate work visa because they're going to be breaching the visitor requirements. Circumstances people can fly in are clearly very limited and companies must ensure that they have appropriate visas and sponsor licenses in place. Otherwise, it can have both civil and criminal consequences for the company. Thanks a lot for joining me today. Hopefully that's very much a whistle-stop tour of a few areas, but hopefully they're relevant to you and they'll help moving forward. Thanks a lot. Today's conversation will centre around faith, and specifically how workplaces can be inclusive to people of faith. This applies to both physical and virtual working environments, 
and the general company culture that supports the recruitment, retention and positive employment of those with additional requirements due to their faith. It also includes where organisations can celebrate various faiths and create that truly inclusive culture where people feel supported to be open about their beliefs at work. The discussion will be led by Rabbi Warren Elf, a rabbi with two reform synagogues, co-chair of the Faith Network for Manchester and co-chair of the GM Faith and Belief Advisory Panel set up by the Mayor Andy Burnham, someone clearly with a wealth of experience in this area. Welcome to the podcast, Warren. It's great to have you as a host for this discussion today, and we're looking forward to the perspective that you can bring. Thanks, Ian. It's great to be involved in this podcast today. For me, faith is important, obviously, as a rabbi, but faith is also so important to a large number of people in all sorts of ways. It's relevant possibly to our home life, our spiritual life, leisure, and also work. It's so important, meaningful, and special for large numbers of people across Manchester, Greater Manchester, as well as many other places. Yet in my experience, often at work, it's not encouraged to show about things about our faith. It's not wanted. Sometimes it's even actively discouraged. When I was teaching, and I taught maths for several years, I was also the union rep in the school. And so often when things went wrong, it was partly because the person wasn't understood and wasn't valued. Yet we work best when we are appreciated and we are valued and people know who we are and we know this as well. There are thankfully many organizations and businesses that do now recognize this and it's valuable for us to learn from this, to see what works and to see what we can do further, which leads me very nicely on to our two guests today. Today we'll be speaking to Dr. Amna Khan, Senior Lecturer in Retail and Consumer Behaviour at the Manchester Metropolitan University, and to Furkan Naim, the Community Organiser at Citizens UK. It's my pleasure to welcome you both to this discussion. I'll come to you first, Amna. As an EDI Chair for Pro Manchester and the Chair of their Race, Ethnicity, Religion and Belief Group, could you explore your opinions on the topic of faith and how employers can be more inclusive? Thank you very much for that introduction, Warren. I'm a British Pakistani Muslim and my faith is increasingly important to my self-identity and it is to everybody who practices a faith. And it definitely indicates what consumption behaviours I will be involved in. For example, how I dress, what I eat, what I do, what I don't do. And I think increasingly within the workplace, organizations and employers are more aware of the need to be responsive to people of faith and to make those people who practice their faith feel like they belong. And that's a very important part of an organization because feeling like you belong in an organization will ultimately change the way that you respond in that environment. Now, there are many ways that organizations can be inclusive to faith. And I think the first place that any organization should start with their inclusivity and diversity initiatives is to think about how they're going to implement the change process to create a more inclusive environment so that 
those people that want to practice their faith can do that easily. So as you introduce this notion of change and inclusivity and belonging, your objective is to make that workplace a better place to practice faith and more acceptance of that faith. What we need to remember about organizations is they are unique. Every organization is different. It has a different ecosystem, different cultures, identities, processes, policies, and most importantly, different types of people that come together. And when you try and create this change in an organization, there's certain things that you need, components. One of the key components that you need is buying from that senior leadership team for the support and endorsement for all of these changes that you're going to make of the faith practices that you're going to make more inclusive, celebrate them, allow people to conduct their faiths within the workplace and within the work time. So where I would normally start is to think about who is in my organization and what are the faiths that are practiced within my organization. And that can be done at the recruitment stage. Many organizations ask you about your faith then. Maybe some employees don't disclose that. So you could always run a survey, employee discussion groups. But essentially, you're trying to understand the balance and proportions of the faiths that are conducted within your organization. Now, once you understand the balance of the different faiths that you have, whether they're Muslims, Sikhs, Christians, Jews, Hindus, you can now understand who your audience is and start to think about the types of support that you're going to put in place and the initiatives that you're going to help them with. So creating that impact and being effective in the process of creating inclusivity of faith is to bring those individuals along with you on this journey. And it is very much a journey of creating a workplace that's more inclusive. It's important to consult those individuals and speak to them, offering them safe spaces to speak about their faith and not to marginalize a single individual, even if they're the only individual practicing that faith, but to look at it holistically and give everybody an opportunity to speak and to voice their opinions without judgment and without concerns. And through that process, you're actively empowering your employees to co-create this organizational transformation and shape what a workplace should look like to be inclusive of their faith and reflect their needs and what they want. And empowering them gives them a voice, a voice to share their experiences, which is incredibly valuable in the process. An example might be one of the things that I've actively done with my organization is when when it's Ramadan, I'm quite clear that Ramadan is there. My employees know about it and I actively want to take some of my annual leave so that I can spend more of my time in devotion of prayer and worship. And that's offered to me quite freely. Now, this year I couldn't take annual leave. So my employer actually said to me, work flexibly and you work the hours that suit you and that will accommodate your needs and your desires to practice your faith in such an important month, but also allow you to conduct your work life. And that creating that balance is so important, but it also creates this notion of belonging, which was really, really important because my employer recognized that Ramadan is one of the most important parts of the year, is so important to my self-identity. I really don't want to miss out on practicing my faith in Ramadan. 
But at the same time, I have some duties and obligations to my employer and allowing me that flexibility was really important. And then I think about the process of implementing the change and the solutions when employees are proactively engaged with this, your response from them is going to be more positive in the way that they reach out to the organization. For example, I mentioned about me and Ramadan, but also Eid, when Eid comes along and and it's celebrated within the organization, when I get messages from my colleagues, that really creates a notion of support for me too. If I was to talk about tangible actions that create a sense of belonging, there are a number of things that employers can do. For me as a Muslim, one of the most important changes an organization or institution can instill within their organization is to provide a provision to undertake the five daily prayers. These are obligatory for Muslims. We have to do them as part of practicing our faith. And one of the things that we need to practice our prayer is to have the facilities within the washrooms, the toilets, for us to undertake ablution or the wadu, where we prepare our bodies for prayer. Now, this isn't very accessible in most organizations. And this is the one thing that would make a huge difference for Muslims who want to pray within their workplace. The facilities at the moment often don't accommodate places to do your ablution. For example, I need to wash my arms and I need to wash my feet. I don't think many of the other people who are sharing the washrooms because they're very communal would want to see me washing my feet in a sink. So if organizations were able to provide these provisions for us easily to be able to prepare for prayer, that would be a great addition to and make a huge difference to Muslims. I also think that there's a need for a quiet room for the purposes of prayer, contemplation and private reflection. And this isn't just for Muslims, this could be for anybody of any faith who needs that time out, but also people who don't practice faith and just need some time to to meditate or to think and some thinking space. I mentioned about acknowledging and creating calendars of cultural and religious celebrations Providing staff holidays on Eid, for example, Ramadan or Diwali, Hanukkah, Chinese New Year. This creates a culture of inclusion, which reflects the culture of the staff and the celebrations that are important to them. I would suggest a very easy fixes to making people feel like they're more included. But also thinking about avoiding important planning dates, such as away days or strategic meetings that clash with important dates in that religious calendar. Because all of a sudden, if that away day takes place, I have to make a choice between whether I'm practicing my religious celebration or whether I'm able to go to the away day. And that's not really a decision that employees want to have to be making because they want to just be able to access both. I think there's definitely work that can be done on educating the workforce about religion, and that can become in many different ways. Campaigning about the differences that make us different, who we are, and embracing them are quite key. I think there's so much that can be learned about religious celebrations, religious dress, or even religious observations. For example, why do females wear the hijab? And what is the reason for it and how they feel? I think there's a lot to be said about that because there's perceptions of women who wear the hijab 
as though they have not chosen to wear that. But many women who talk about the hijab, they talk about the empowerment of wearing the hijab. And I think that this educational pieces that can be done around that. I remember when I used to wear the hijab, when I came to the workplace after having not wore the hijab, I was asked many questions by many of my colleagues who were intrigued about why I wore the hijab, who was involved in that decision and how that I came to that decision. Was it a point in my life where I had to wear it? Which really reflects that there are individuals and colleagues who really want to learn, learn about the process and learn about our journey and learn about how we are trying to practice our faiths. Now, there's many ways that you can educate colleagues. Lunch and learn events are great. And if they were married and mapped onto specific religious celebrations, referring back to that religious calendar I mentioned, and you could create more social events related to that, that would be a great way to educate your colleagues and the workforce. And education is, is really powerful. It changes perceptions. It challenges the current narrative. And it can really change the way that people feel within an organization. Another way is to think about book clubs and sharing articles. And I think there's something so intimate about having a book and reading a book and trying to understand how other people live through their shaped narratives and perceptions. And I think that's a great way of informing and educating people about faith. One of the things that I really like about Ramadan is the questions that I get from many of my colleagues about why I'm practicing Ramadan, how I feel when I conduct a fast, what sort of processes my body goes through. And I think that buddying up with other people that are not from the Islamic faith is a great way for them to really understand and experience what we go through. I really believe that if you want to understand what a fast is, you've really got to do it because it is quite challenging if you've never done it before. But once you feel like your other colleagues are buddying up with you, you feel this huge sense of empathy and team spirit. And, you know, you feel like you're collectively in this process together, which really builds a bond with other Muslims and non-Muslims too. And I think that's a beautiful way of sharing the journey with other people. So these are many of the ways that organizations can make their organization more inclusive to faith. Some are quick fixes, some are passive, some are very active, some involve engagement and education. But ultimately, the purpose of introducing change is to make it more inclusive and to create the sense of belonging and empower everybody to practice their faith and to live that part of their faith in the workplace so they don't have to leave it behind at home and so everybody feels like they're wanted and they're included. Thank you, Amna. That was uh, full of lots of good and important information and ideas in there. We often hear that uh, it's important to have a prayer space and time available. And when you mentioned working flexibly, I think that's uh, one of the ways of approaching that as well as the physical space and opportunities. Lots of ideas and, of course, the education is one of the key things uh, within that for ourselves, for each other, everyone in the workplace, all the staff on board as well. So thank you, Emma. That was really, really helpful. Now turn to you, Furkan, through your work with Citizens UK and also your own insights. Could you share any advice for employers on how they can support people of faith in their organisations and workplaces? 
Yeah, thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, Amina, for that great sort of like introduction to the benefits of religion, diversity in the, in the workplace. And I think it's so important that our employees and our organizations and businesses take a really good step in the right direction in terms of being inclusive and helping employees to find a place where they feel that they love and enjoy working and they feel being listened to. And I think in this day and age where there's so many different things to consider, you know, societal shifts mean that it's really important to consider religion and belief in the workplace. We know that an inclusive workplace accepts and encourages colleagues to feel confident to bring themselves to work. And organizations where employees feel safe to share their faith work will reap the benefits of that diversity in the workplace. And I think it's so important where society shifts and where people either becoming more religious or have different religions or different beliefs. I just think it's really important for our organizations, businesses and employers to really reflect that in society as well. I think, you know, in particular, sort of like immigration to the UK has meant there has been a sort of like big diversity in the workplace and increasing people who choose where they identify as their religion or their belief or their background. And um, the 2011 consensus, for example, indicated an increase in those following non-Christian beliefs from 5.8% to 8.4% of the population. And this is probably going to be reflected in many of the workplaces that we see. And, you know, there's so many benefits of religious diversity in the workplace, making sure that the organization is open, is inclusive, allows the workers to feel like the workplace is, is their own. It's important to understand how freedom of religion at work can make your workplace more inclusive. And what that means is religious diversity will always enable you to be more confident and attract and retain different workforces or the same workforces. And that reflects the society that we operate in as well. So we want to make sure that our workplaces are a reflection of the society and the communities that we come from. We have so many different organizations that are working across the globe internationally as well. And I think it's important that some of our big organizations that operate across the world understand the different world religions and the different practices of, of different religions in different parts of the world. And, you know, that will help them understand their customer base as well. And I just think about some of our football clubs, for example, whenever there's a religious sort of like day or celebration or festival, it always fills me up when I log on to Twitter and I see my beloved Man United tweeting about sort of like the Hindu festival or sending Eid Mubarak messages or their congratulations to the Jewish community whenever, whenever there's a holy time for them. And it just fills me up that this is my football club. Employees can also take this. So we see more and more sort of like employees talking about and celebrating the different sort of like religion practices that are out there. There are so many varied organizational benefits to including making sure that religion is part of the identity of that business as well. You know, there's a wide acceptance of the organization and societal benefits of workforce diversity. And, you know, as religion workplace grows, the consideration of religious inclusion will also be critical to achieve and retain its benefits. And some of the Research suggests that religious conviction brings across sort of like strong ethical values to the business as well uh, and different perspectives to the way people work, which is really advantageous in, in many sectors. Employees who, who connect with their deeper purpose of their work and, and relate it to their faith, the, the company or the, or the business will reap the benefits of that. 
And often says that people who feel that their workplace offers them a place to pray or takes into consideration their religious beliefs, you're going to get that back tenfold from that person. That person feels welcome, they feel listened to, they feel like they have a belonging and they feel like they work for an organization that values them. It's only going to bring benefit to that organization or that business as well. The richness and diversity of religious inclusion brings into the workplace will benefit all sectors. For example, you know, for sectors that have a diverse client or customer base, to have the insight and the sensitivity towards religion will go sort of like really valuable and that will extend in many places, especially those working in sort of like the healthcare, social workers, counsellors, lawyers, judges and teachers. And I think the other thing it does, it creates an open culture. Employees today have a different expectations of the workplace than their predecessors. We're living in a very much a different world now than we were in, in the last century, for example. You know, in many societies, people have the freedom to choose their value systems and beliefs. When people are more open like this, they can be less willing to disconnect from their personal identities at work. And people expect to express their views freely in work and be respected regardless. So I think that's really important as well. And there are so many different things to, to offer. And some of the things that I would say that employees should do in their workplaces is number one, sort of like offer training to all employees. I think that's really important right at the beginning of when people start or having these sort of like regular training sessions where you bring in diversity, inclusion, as well as the importance of sort of like religion. I think even if a workplace has very few people of faith or none, I think it's still important that organizations and businesses and employees take that step to train all employees because ultimately you want to get your employees to understand the rich sort of like fabric and, and diverse society that they operate in. So even if your business or your organization doesn't have anyone working in there with people of, of faith, I think it's still important to train your, your, your workers on the importance of diversity and inclusion and religion as well. What would be also really helpful is, is to provide time off for religious reasons, whether that's sort of like being flexible in your days that you give off to people. Uh, want to take time off for, for, for their holy days, it's really important that the organisation is able to do that. I think encourage employees to accept differences and, and being diverse and always having that open space. I think it's important that some of the employees don't, you know, are willing to compromise. They're not too rigid in the way they work. For example, I'm going to mention about Ramadan. I think I know that's an important time where maybe the workplace could become a bit more flexible and have more flexible hours, especially in the long days as it was a few years ago in the summer when a lot of Muslims were fasting for long periods of the time. It was great to see that so many organizations and businesses back in the summer were having that sort of like open, flexible working hours to ensure that maybe some of the Muslim employees started work late and maybe finished late. I think introducing a an interfaith room, a silent room, whatever you want to call it, sort of like room, just a space where people can go in and it doesn't have to necessarily be sort of like a room dedicated to religion. I think it's also part of people's sort of like mental health and well-being, but if you can incorporate that together, I think that would be really helpful as well. So introducing a space where people can go and have a bit of a reflective time, I think is really important. I think um, having a zero tolerance to sort of like religious hatred, really important. Often we hear stories in the workplaces where sometimes assumptions are made or, you know, things are said 
which borderline sort of like on being sometimes being racist or being sort of like prejudiced or being on that borderline. And, and sometimes things are said in the workplace where people get along and, and, and jokes are made and stuff like that. But having a zero tolerance to anything that would upset any person, especially when it comes to people of, of different faith and, and faith backgrounds and ensuring that at the earliest sort of like possible phase, the company and the organization shows a zero tolerance to any of those attitudes that are being displayed by people, especially to those people of faith backgrounds. Another thing that employees could do is encourage flexible dress code, you know, just add a bit more diversity to the workplace. And leadership starts from the top. It's really important that our senior management in organizations, our sort of like chief executives and, and, and the top people really lead by example, you know, it's for them to go on a journey themselves, especially those who don't maybe have a religious or faith background, but employ lots of people from a faith background. It is really incumbent upon them to go on a journey where they are learning about the people in their workplace, about the society that they operate in, and for them to really show leadership in this area is really important because ultimately it's those people at the very top that will be able to make those really important decisions and, you know, that will have an impact on their on their workplaces. And it's for them to really show that leadership step up and go on an education, sort of like learning uh, journey themselves in order to make sure that their workplaces and their organizations are really reflective of the society that they come from and showing that they care and have that care and compassion for those people in their workplaces and the final thing that I'd like to sort of like end with is just, you know, it's just been so lovely to see on social media and sort of like other places where you find people with a certain religious belief sharing sort of like their stories of how their workplaces have made sort of like the environment more inclusive for them or when their boss has gone out of the way to accommodate a certain person from a religious background because of their faith and their beliefs and their values. And so like the amount of people that share those good stories. And I think we need more of that. We need more of those stories to come out to really encourage some of the other employees out there to take similar steps to as the ones that we're seeing. And it's great to see that, you know, in places like Manchester, we're having sort of like, you know, the Mayor Legion on really important initiatives around inclusive and diversity, our big organizations, the councils, the universities, making some really good steps in this in this area. And I think it's so important. Even if it's just a small percentage of your workplace who, who follow a faith sort of like background, you know, that's really important to them. But it's important your whole organization and your whole workforce really understand the diversity, the differences in your in your workplace and, and make the place of work a richer experience, a better experience for, for everyone there. And people will go on that journey and understanding. And it could be, you know, sometimes it's in a workplace where people for the first time will ever come to contact with someone from a different background that won't be unheard of. Similarly in school, maybe or university, people might have similar experiences, but it could be in, in a workplace, it will be the first time that two people from two different backgrounds are coming together for the first time. And in that setting, that workplace and that organization has a really important role. So allow a culture where those two different backgrounds of people are getting to know each other and understanding each other and dispelling some of the myths that we see sometimes in the media being portrayed by the media about different religions. The workplace has a has a massive role to play in, in helping shaping people's perceptions 
and bringing people together. And we hope going forward that that can be the case and that workplaces can be a real beacon for bringing communities together and sharing that understanding and, and, and dialogue and just making our workplace a richer experience for people. And, and ultimately, hopefully, when people go back home into their communities and society, they'll be reflective in their societies as well. And they can share that with their families. So workplace for me have a massive role to play in helping organizations and people to understand their journey. Thank you, Furkan. I think that was uh, another wonderful opportunity to, to think about some of the ideas and to hear some of the, the thoughts that you have that could well make, help make a, a big difference. So one last question uh, to each of you. If there's one piece of advice on this topic that you to each give to the audience of the Good Employment Charter, to employers across Greater Manchester, what would it be? Uh, Anna, would you like to go first? Organisations need to recognise the beauty of different faiths and religious practices and the importance of them to an individual self-identity is critical aspect of creating inclusivity and belonging in the workplace. As employers, you should feel compelled to create workplaces that are more inclusive of religion and faith. When you feel like you belong, you bring your authentic self to work and they are a profound impact on socially, mentally and emotionally, not only for that individual, but the team that they work for. Research by Harvard Business School has indicated that belonging impacts your bottom line. Higher belonging is linked to a 56% increase in job performance. Higher belonging is linked to a 50% decrease in turnover risk. Higher belonging is linked to a 75% reduction in sick days. So my question is, can your organisation afford not to create more inclusivity related to faith because higher belonging is linked to the workplace? Great. Thanks, Amna. And Furkan, do you have one piece of advice for the employers across Greater Manchester? One advice is show leadership. Show leadership in the setting when it comes to diversity and religious sort of like acceptance and tolerance in, in the workplace. You know, it's up to you to go on that journey of education and learning yourselves. It's up to you as members of the Good Employment Charter to show what good looks like in the workplace and make sure that is, it is open, it is inclusive, making sure that you are being reflective of your workplaces are reflective of the society and communities that we come from in, in Greater Manchester, going on that journey to share that learning and training with your workforce and ensuring that you always have open and inclusive workplace where everyone from every background, whether they are people of faith or no faith, feel equally valued, feel like they belong in that workplace and feel that their workplace takes their values and their beliefs also into consideration, which will only make a far greater workforce that will reap benefits to your organization and business. Brilliant. Thank you, Fulcan. So thank you both very, very much for your time, your thoughts and what you shared with us with the recommendations um, for the way to develop this and embrace faith, belief, religion in the workplace um, across Greater Manchester. Dr. Amna Khan, thank you, Furkan. Thank you very much as well. Very much appreciate it. A lot of what you said overlaps. It's important to educate ourselves and also our staff, and training can be a very important way of doing that. 
So the more inclusive we can be and the more engaging we can be with our staff and making sure they feel valued, I think that is very clearly a way forward. And I will throw in this if anyone wants any training in the different faith and interfaith um, stuff, the Faith Network from Manchester, along with all the other interfaith groups across Manchester, are very welcome to offer support and advice. Hope you've had, uh, found this very interesting and helpful. To end today's episode, we'll now move on to our opinion piece. This is where we invite somebody to speak about an equality issue. And this week, we're speaking about cultural differences in the workplace. We're delighted to be joined by our great friend of the Charter, Gillian Drakeford, a senior executive with over 25 years of international retail experience, including with IKEA in China, Netherlands and the UK. Hi, Gillian. Thanks for joining us in the podcast. It's really great to have you with us. Hi, Ian. It's really good to be here and um, I'm so happy to be able to talk on such an important topic. Gillian, you've got a huge amount of international experience and we know you have a rich perspective on managing people from a range of cultural backgrounds and different walks of life. So feeding from that experience, what are the key insights you'd like to share on managing cultural difference and the challenges you've faced and perhaps how you overcame them? Thanks, Ian. I think that's a great way to start. Where I'd like to start actually is that, you know, I feel very fortunate because I have spent my working life working in a cross-cultural environment. I think that's one of the advantages of working uh, for an international company. And what I can see, though, is be it China, Netherlands, or even working with the UK and Ireland, Different cultures are so prominent. You know, when I worked in London and one of our London stores had over 46 nationalities in a team of around 500 people. So it doesn't matter where you are. I think cultural awareness is so important and a real opportunity. I think when we think about culture, you know, it's formed by geography, faith, genders, generations, organizations and sectors. And I think, you know, today, in today's world, particularly where we have to work across different environments, then it's very rare for you just to be together with people like you in terms of the way that they've been raised or the environment they're in. So I think it is so important that we really embrace it. And I think for many organizations, they need to have this ability to have understanding different cultures because actually to work cross-border and to really thrive, you need this to be successful. And when I reflect on why it's been so important for me, I think I was very fortunate to work for an organization with a very strong purpose. We were clear about uh, what our role was. So why did we exist as a home furnishing company? What were we aiming to do? And then I think the other thing that was very important from an organizational perspective was we were very clear on the values, a shared set of values, which led to a set of behaviors that people understood how we work together. And I think that helps regardless of where you are as an organization to really be able to be clear on, you know, who are we? Why do we exist? What's our contribution? And then what are the values that we share in the way that we do things? And I think that can work in many organizations. Can I just ask you there about the values and 
and developing shared values when perhaps the cultural mindset and cultural values across the organization are different? How do you unify those? I think one of the things that as an organization we always started with was that we were very clear around the values of the organization. So we had a shared set of values. And wherever IKEA recruited worldwide, we always did value-based recruitment. And therefore, when recruiting people into the organization, we focused on similarities. So where could we find a values match? That didn't mean that we only employed people that were a sort of replicas of the organization, but it gave you a base to talk about things, a common understanding. And then I think one of the things that we always did was spend time talking about the values. So these values weren't just something that were up on a wall in a training room. These were values that we worked with every day. And if I take one which is very common for us, which was togetherness. And if I think about my time in China, togetherness actually from a Scandinavian perspective and from an IKEA perspective was very much about celebrating diverse experiences, diverse skills, diverse perspectives, and coming together in order to find solutions and ways of doing things that made you stronger and better and for us, actually, a better experience for consumers. And we had a lot of discussion in China because togetherness, if it wasn't translated correctly, and the meaning behind togetherness at the beginning was actually interpreted as harmony. And I think that was a really interesting where actually you really, togetherness means speaking up, speaking out, listening trying to find commonality or moving things forward, whereas quite often harmony actually means that people don't necessarily speak up or speak out and bring their perspective. That's an example where we really had to get together to really understand what we meant by our values and what sat behind them. I think another one that was a great one to work with is, you know, I was in China back in 2002. And one of IKEA's values is cross-consciousness because they're from, you know, the small lands of Sweden, which is South Sweden. But of course, cost-consciousness in an environment which is highly developed, if we take a, a mature environment of Sweden, and then if we take it into China, where at that time everything was developing, then what actually is cost-consciousness for you? Is it actually the lowest cost? and the cheapest, or is it actually investing your resource or your money in something that actually works? And that was a good conversation. And sometimes what happened, uh, we, we ran a sustainability campaign once about a more sustainable life at home. And unfortunately, the global comms team came with lots and lots of material to try and tell our consumers in China how to live sustainably, maybe with saving water. And of course, it missed the audience because actually the environment in which you were in was much more cost conscious, much more sustainably aware and thrifty to using resources and had many things that the more mature Western world could learn from. So I think it's good to have an organization with strong values and a strong point of view about their role. But the other point is to always understand the context in which you are 
operating in and the communities that you are part of, because you should never enter into another culture and think, actually, I'm here to tell you how to do things. You need to be curious and interested. At the core of this, I've written down here communication and communication in the roundest sense that, goodness, you've got to listen first and you've really got to listen hard and then, I guess, communicate and communicate and then reflect and understand again before you get to that position of common understanding and moving forward. So communication is key, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think that also is when in many cases you're working, you know, I'm a native English speaker, but in many cases you're working with lots of people who English is not their first language either. So the type of language you use needs to be very simple in the sense that you people really understand and you can actually clarify. I always felt that you needed to use all of your senses all of the time when working in in those sorts of environments. And I think that then translated for me very much when I came back to the UK, because, you know, when you work in a big organization and we live in a very multicultural society, then you need to really understand where people come from, what's important to them, what's common, but also what are the things that we need to understand in each other. So I think communication is super key. And then I also think, you know, you need to challenge and you need to be able to navigate different social norms. And I think one of the most important things is to actually reflect on what happens when things don't go the way you expected them to go. So never assume and never assume based in your own values, because if you do that, it's bound to come back and catch you out. Brilliant insights, Gillian. I'm fascinated by the London IKEA store. It's an absolutely multicultural microcosm, isn't it? I guess. So what benefits did you see in terms of how the organization operated by having such cultural diversity and being able to integrate that into your management style? I think, you know, the benefits are huge. Because I think what you get on an organizational level is so many different people with very diverse experiences, beliefs, different understandings that actually if the environment is right and they can bring that forward and be a part of it, it actually allows you as an organization to connect to more and more people. I think it makes you a lot more tolerant as well, because you also start to understand what's important for others. We had the huge diversity in the Wembley store, and it still exists today. And that was fascinating because actually when people were developing their management style or their leadership style, they actually had to think about, well, who is the person I'm going to meet? What's important to them? And you might have in a team somebody who was born in Russia, somebody born in Singapore, the Spanish, the Portuguese, the Swedish, the German. We had a lot of Polish people, which actually means you needed to understand them and what was important for them in order to connect them to the business that you were in. But the richness of that, I think, was um, always something that led you to be able to do business in a better way. And I guess you needed a good set of wing mirrors as well, didn't you? To look, look behind you afterwards to make sure that whatever that interaction was had actually worked, I guess. 
Yeah. And I think that's a big part of it. And I think you learn a lot by living in another culture. You learn a lot by being exposed to other cultures and beliefs. But I think one of the things you do need to do is take the time to reflect when things work really well and why, but also when things don't. If I think right back to my very early days when I went to China and we did lots of workshops and meetings and you were used to coming from an environment or I was where from quite an individualistic society where people, you know, stood up and said their piece. What I learned very quickly, for instance, in China was that actually it's the consensus and the coming together and not having a single voice, which is actually what is respected in people. So you could have a a workshop or you could have a management meeting where that consensus and nobody really stepping up and speaking and wanting to be seen and then the face element where actually you needed to learn how to navigate that, how to work with different techniques in order that you heard people's voices, because actually it wasn't a natural ability, you know, it wasn't something natural to do. So you either needed to encourage it or you had to use different techniques. Fascinating. It really does mean you've got to have an open mind to different forms of communication, I guess, and different ways of using all the various modes of communication with your workforce in that situation. Gillian, we're coming near to the end of our time. We could talk forever on this because it's fascinating. But if you were to give one piece of advice to employers in Greater Manchester, those that are listening out there today, what would it be? What would be the one piece of advice to confront cultural diversity in your organisation and manage it better? I have two actually, Ian, if that's okay. Go on then. Yeah, thank you. I think the first piece for me is that as an organization, you need to be clear on your purpose and the values and behaviors of the organization, because I think that invites people in and that allows then for you to focus on the similarities, but also lean into the differences and to become stronger as an organization. Then I think communication is key. And I do believe it's the use of all your senses because so much is never spoken. It comes in what you see, what you observe, the way that people react to things. And I think you have to have all your senses open to that. But you need to be super curious. You need to be really interested. And I think if you have that and you're happy to reflect on when things work and also when things don't work, then your cultural awareness, your cultural intelligence, as it's being called today, will grow and it comes through experience. And then your organizations and what they do will be enriched. And also the the diversity will actually lead to much, much stronger engagement. Julian, that's an amazing summary. I've just been writing down three C's here about communication, curiousness, constant curiousness, I guess. And um, I love cultural intelligence. It adds to emotional intelligence and everything else that we've had to pick up over the last two years or so, particularly as we're dealing with things through screens. But cultural intelligence is certainly something I think that kind of sums up what you just talked about the last 10 minutes or so. Julian, I can't thank you enough for your contribution. I know we will be working together on a, a range of issues to support leadership and management issues 
Borgood Employment through the Charter. But it's great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ian. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for joining us this week on Good Employment Chatter. Make sure you follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn for all the latest updates. Subscribe to stay tuned to our episodes. And if you found this one valuable, please leave us a review and recommend it to others. The Good Employment Charter is available to support organisations across Greater Manchester. Please get in touch for more information. We'll be posting new episodes every week, so make sure you tune in next time. Thank you.